Well, welcome everyone to this wonderful festival. And thank you all for being here, and specifically at this event right now. And we give a huge thank you as well to the Arts Council England, along with Faber and Faber and other festival friends who are the sponsors of this, this event. We're so grateful for their support. At the end of our performance today, we will have questions and answers. And now it's with great pleasure that I introduce to you our performers this afternoon, Andrew Motion and Hannah Sullivan. Hannah has an impressive academic background, both in the USA and England, and her debut collection of three poems won the T.S. Eliot Prize in 2018. It was described by one critic as an absolutely exhilarating collection. Andrew, who was Poet Laureate from 1999 to 2009, was knighted in 2009. His writings, works and publications and achievements are recognised and lauded around the world. We're all looking forward to this afternoon's performance. We have a treat in store. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Um, I can speak for both of us in opening this just to say how nice it is to be here and in my case, back again after a long time of not being here, so thank you. Um, the way that we've decided that this is going to work, or the way that we hope it's going to work, is by us having a conversation for five or seven minutes, and then we're both going to read something, and then we'll talk again for a bit, and then we'll read something for a bit, and that'll be the end of us and the time for you to get, or the end of us being the only speakers, and the time for you to start joining in. And I've taken my watch off and put it on the table in front of me, so I'll try and stick to, to that. Um, we're here because we have the same publishers and because we've both been interested for varying lengths of time in writing long poems, I think that's probably fair to say. Um, Hannah's uh, first book, as you've just been reminded, has three long poems in it, though the question of what a long poem is these days is something that I think we need to look at for a second. Um, and my last book was a single long poem, which came out a year or so ago. Um, but I think perhaps it would be a good idea to start with this question of what a long poem is these days, because if I'd asked that question in the year 1800, a long poem would have been Cooper's The Task, or um, they never knew he was writing it, Wordsworth's The Prelude, or some such thing, which goes on for hundreds of pages, both of which go on for hundreds of pages. When Keats says um, that a long poem, he says, is when he's writing Endymion, um, in 1818, he says a long poem is a test of the invention, and that's one of the things that appeals to him about writing long poems. But of course, a long poem these days is The Wasteland, which is 25 pages long, and then there's the notes. Um, so our sense of what a long poem is, in some sense, has changed quite profoundly. But how do you react to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, perhaps now we would think that Keats's odes taken together could be read as one long Indeed. poem. We might think of, perhaps we are more familiar with the idea of certain kinds of sequencing or a a writing project that you know right. continues for a length of time and examines something from a particular perspective is one way of thinking about it a lot. Right. Um, I suppose one of the difficulties for me has been thinking about how similar the parts in a long poem need to be to each other, so how much cohesion there needs to be, you know, either metrically or thematically or in terms of the length of the parts and how much variety you can yeah, have. The, the balance between those two things can be difficult to work out, I think. Well, let's, let's think about that a bit more, so that we need to have that balance, because a, a long chunk of something is written in more or less exactly the same form. I mean, the idea of 
several dozen pages written in the iambic pentameter. Right, so traditionally all long poems are written in these sort of stickic climb right. forms, right, where, you know, the Iliad, all of it is in... Indeed. You know, heroic, right. amateur, the prelude, all of it is in blank verse. Right. There's no possibility for variation. But I think, yes, with modern readers, we don't feel so comfortable with that unless perhaps there's a kind of sequence yeah. form. So. so your solution to that in three poems, I mean, it varies between the three poems, but say a little bit about how you... about the reality of solving that problem. Sure, so I mean, whether it's a solution or not, I'm not really sure, but something, the form especially of the first poem is um, to approach the same scene, really, you know, being a young person in New York through a variety of different formal modes, and those different formal modes allow different aspects of the city to be brought out. Um, so there are sections in long rhyming couplets that are more satirical. Um, there are sections in like the, the opening, which I will, I'll read, um, in shorter, kind of more traditionally rhyming forms that are more lyrical. Um, so the form is kind of driving the yes. attitude to the material. Quite. Um, so the reader is expected to, and is indeed made to, by those changes in form, to moderate, to alter his or yeah. her response to it. Yeah, and I, I, I suppose that one would hope um, that there's a kind of revisionary structure sometimes Quite. to that, and that you're seeing the same thing again, yeah, you're exactly. seeing it from a different from angle a different or a different, a different aspect yes. of the subject. Yeah, I um, think I tend to think of it having something to do with what I think of the sort of characteristic structure of opera being like, mm. and that there's, there's recitative, which kind of gives you the gen about something or other. Yeah. And then you have arias which decorate it or elaborate or, or turn it from narrative into lyric. Um, and that seems to, to me something that, I, I think, without knowing each other, that's what we've both been trying to, to do. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the difficulty is just that in opera you have lots of people singing, and yeah. as a poet, you're basically by yourself. So, yeah, you're singing in the um, show. <laughs> I mean, to the extent that they're performance pieces, there are some questions about how far you, your own voice can modulate, yes. you know, to fit yeah, the different forms, right. or what, what do you really going to do with your voice? Indeed. Um, well, actually, relate, I mean, this is such an interesting subject, I think, and I, I know that we could both go on about it for mm. hours, but, but just quickly before we stop talking and starting reading, thinking, still thinking about formal things, in your New York poem, the first poem in your, in your book, you decided to speak of the main character as you. Mm. Um, and my, the poem I'm going to read a bit from in a minute, this poem, poem called Essex Clay, I decided, which is clearly a strongly autobiographical mm -hmm. poem, it's about my dead mum, my dead dad, and something else that I'll tell you about in a minute. And I decided at some stage in the writing of it, not initially, but in some stage in the writing of it, that I would describe myself in the third person. Um, or situate myself as in the third person mm. because it would give me a sort of purchase on, uh, on things that I was experiencing in the initial writing of it I wasn't able to have when I was writing in the first person. And also I simply wanted to reflect the fact this was a long time ago and I'm not the same guide now as I was when I was writing it. So tell me about your you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you'd written some of that material before as mm. well in prose in a, in a first-person form so that the, sure. there is a, this revision structure and that you're retreating right. something you've written but then with this different pronoun. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, um, I had an I pronoun in this poem to start with so there was a present tense I who was addressing a, a past self um, with the you pronoun. But one of the other things I like about the you pronoun um, is that it can at some points bleed from a you singular into a you Indeed. plural. And so... There are certainly some moments in the poem. Someone said to me the other day, um, one of my students, um, I was making saying, saying something about David Foster Wallace and the failure of one of the stories, um, in my mind, in brief interviews with hideous men. And they said, but don't you think David Foster Wallace is the great American novelist? It says that in your poem. It's like, no, the, the you think that isn't me. That's right. you know, in that satirical section is you, all of you people sitting around the table in the kind of German right. people. 
So for me, that pronoun had right. that kind of flexibility. But, right. but certainly, yeah, I agree with you about measuring out the distance between yeah. your present self and the self in the past, the vacancy. I mean, I'm sure that everybody reading poems all the time thinks that the I is not as innocent as it appears to be in a poem. I mean, we don't, it's not as though we don't, as readers, it's not as though we don't register the gap between the, the person whose name is on the jacket of the book and the eye that appears in the poem. Of course we do. But it does dramatise it, turning that eye into a you or into a he. Yeah, I mean, it also just allows, I think, for different kinds of um, sort of speech act, act structures. Right. So, I mean, to speak for myself in that poem, um, why, why are you bothering to tell the you this? Yeah. I mean, if they've already done it, yeah. and they also basically don't exist anymore because yeah. they've become you in right. the present, what, what is the benefit of recapitulating for a past self the way that they're living? Like, right. what is the, um, I don't know how you feel about he in that respect. What, what is the benefit in the sense of telling a story about yourself in the third person? What kind of psychological function might it? Well, as I say, I think it was mainly to do with exempting myself from a certain degree of embarrassment or... It's an underestimated force in nature embarrassment, isn't it? Um, um, or just getting a grip on myself and being able to mm. manipulate myself as though I really was, was a character yeah. that could be kind of wheeled around the stage a bit. I think, I mean, we should probably sure. start our readings, but actually that, which, my saying that does lead into this. That I, I should just say before I start reading that um, this is a poem in three parts. The first part is about the death of my mother, the slow death of my mother following a very bad accident then my father's death many years later. But on the, as some of you who know who've read my prose memoir that Hannah's referred to, the day that my mum had her accident, which is now many, many years ago, I was staying with my then girlfriend, um, whom I went to my home from the next morning <coughs> to go back home, and my life had clearly been changed very dramatically by this accident and set off in a different direction. And when the prose book came out, she the girlfriend person, whom I hadn't seen for something like 40 years, um, wrote to me out of the blue and said, remember me? Because <laughs> I think a bit of the book had been, been in one of the newspapers. And I said, of course I remember you. It says so in, the, in my book. Um, and she said, shall we meet? And I said, yes. And she said, let's have tea. And I wrote back and said, I think it's quite important for us to meet at a meal where alcohol can be involved more directly than, than it generally is at tea time. Um, so we had lunch together, but not quite in the place that I've situated it in the poem, in fact, but um, I moved the geography of it a little bit, so, which takes us back, I suppose, to the question of where, what, what happens to autobiographical writing when you are writing something that calls itself a autobiography. Anyway, so I'll just read the last part of the poem, which will take a few minutes, um, in which I re-meet this person, who in the poem is called Juliet, which seemed to me a kind of romantic name. <laughs> After 40 years, Juliet emails him. Can they meet? He reads her message again, and again counts. 40 years since their first last date and lamplight sweating on those oak panels in her spare bedroom, magnolia leaves pat-patting a leaded window. Four zero, since her slithering black hair, creamy swimmer's shoulders, her big, soft, wide, words still fail him, mouth. He delays answering. A minute is hardly decent. Very well another, drumming his fingers, then clickety-click at the gallop, 
and send. St Pancras Station, the booking office bar, which is her idea. He arrives early like a fool, giddy a bit, thanks to his head-back stare at the barrel vault roof and sunsets, lilacs and charcoal staining the many-coloured glass. Or are they ghosts of the steam age? At any rate, he expects to kill time, inspecting John Betjeman coming or going or both in his flapping bronze Mac, train-spotting the Eurostar, fly-blown chisel face of the future. But Juliet is before him. It must be Juliet, trailing in one hand her overnight wheelie bag, the other clamped to a mobile and why not, husband probably in Paris already or wherever, and why not, except his disappointment exists and is frankly scandalous even to him. Juliet, he remembers now, she told him, is wearing dark glasses, very big, black-framed, curved, very dark, dark glasses, masking her face as far as possible. That is all he has time for. Bye, she says. That is her first word to the phone, naturally. Bye. As her wheels trundle to a halt, as he imagines himself replaying, replying, when in fact he is silent and staring. Not the white hand smuggling her mobile into the slit of a navy overcoat pocket. Not the beautiful black bob, grey at the roots. Not the mouth, thinned under its lipstick twirl. Think of the millions of breaths, the words smoking over her lips. Think of feet wearing down a threshold. He is staring at scars on her face. Scars dicing into her lips, little hairline fractures, glazed cracks, fissures and faults, no faults, not faults, scars. What happened? These are his first words after 40 years. What happened? Juliet's hair shakes, blooms in a bridling pony toss, then soothes and fits neatly again. Therefore, he pretends he has seen nothing, and with a bluff enthusiasm which for all she knows is now his natural everyday manner, steers her into a bar of the booking office and ran to a bloody miracle empty corner table without another word spoken. In their background, departure times and destinations trudge through watery echoes. In their immediate vicinity, high-gloss woodwork, new oldie England, horse brasses, and everyone taking a breather. He follows suit. He orders house white, and the waitress who understands speed as the essence rattles it down in a profoundly nervous silvery ice bucket. Juliet, meanwhile, eases her dark glasses a fraction along her nose and rests them on a pale skin ridge, the main scar there, to hide it. She has no time to waste, and without the least flourish or sidestep, delivers a boiled-down recitative, namely her life since last they met and parted. Au pair, marriage, two children, girls, living in freelance, films, documentaries mostly. He shuffles his glass on the tabletop, creased apparently by ghostly cloth wipes, and cannot prevent himself still looking when he thinks she is not looking, at her hair sweetly hooked behind one ear, at her jittery ear stud on its plump little flesh cushion, at her white throat, very white throat, swelling where she swallows in the shadowy collar V of her expensive black silk shirt, at her surprising, forgotten, blunt-tipped, almost square-ended fingers, nails unpainted, milky suns rising from the cuticle. Then his turn, he thinks, but that is not what she came for. She stalls him, she slips off her dark glasses and shows him her white face naked, if she told him a wild cat launching out of a pine forest, 
if she told him a lightning strike, a firework, an alleyway bottle-end lunge, if she told him a particularly sharp idea, an idea like a star birthing, the most brilliant idea imaginable, had shattered out of her brain, through her left cheek, engulfed her left eye and scorched her mouth, he would believe her. But a company car, the M40 late at night, darkness, rain and roly-poly down the embankment outside High Wycombe, High Wycombe, which Juliet offers without him asking, he cannot accept and must. No sooner the tarmac rubber smear, the barrier can opened, the mud gouge and grass rip, the steaming hash and blue dashboard glow, than his mother, of course. His mother in her own seamless flash footage, head shaved, gingery bare, tiger slash operation scar, eyes pulpy, bruise mashed, oxygen tank, tube, mask, oxygen itself, pressing a skeletal finger to pursed lips. Shh. Juliet fills her glass, his glass, but for him, enough. Enough. If he had come with a plan, if he had ever, and he had, he sees that now in corn yellow soft focus, if he had ever imagined they might, then shame on him, shame on him, and why not just creep away immediately with his tail and whatever else tucked between his legs, which Juliet has no time for. She is watching the clock. She is insisting her point is not only the accident, her point is after the accident. She lay unconscious three days. Midwinter fields, no footsteps, no footprints among flint bones and bristly Essex clay lumps, no shadow, the seething snow surface opening and closing its lacy arms. Unconscious, Juliet continues, than awake but not. Awake, awake, not herself. More like a radio dial twirling, picking up on day one a French signal and her voice speaking only in French. On day two, her voice in English with a French accent. On day three, normal, her everyday voice, beaming back to her from the spangling gas warps of infinite deep brain space. He straightens to meet Juliet's eye, to enter her eye and drop through liquid green-flecked chestnut brown into the dead centre, which is prepared to believe him, which is wasteland, a cat look, I know you, do I know you, remind me. He deliberates, he weighs her featherweight weight, and he lets her go. He lets her life go, and Juliet in their time remaining, barefaced, dressed in her wounds, leans forward to catch what he has to say. Thank you. Um, that was a really great bit of storytelling, among other things. Um, I'm going to read for a bit less time now. I'm just going to read um, three sections um, from, from the opening of the first poem in my book, You Very Young in New York. Um, uh, there's a, a prose epigraph from an essay by Jane Didion um, before, the, before the second um, about the white rose bars. Um, so I'll read that to you. Rosie used to say that New York was a fairground. You'll know when it's time, when the fair is over. But nothing seems to happen. You stand around on the same street corners, smoking, thin-elbowed, looking down avenues in a lime-green dress with one arm raised, waiting to get older. Nothing happens. You try without success, the usual prescriptions, the usual assays on innocence. I love you to the wrong person. I feel depressed. Kissing a girl, a sharpener, sea urchin, juice cleansers, but the senses 
laxly fed are self-replenishing, fresh as the first time. So even the eventual sameness has a savour for you. Even the sting when someone flinches at I love you is not unwelcome, like the ulcer on your tongue wetted on the ridges of a tooth. And when he slams you hard against the frame, the poor ticked sallow bruise seems truer than the speed, the spasm with which you came. So nothing happens, no matter what you try, the huge lost innocence at which you aimed recedes, like long perspectives, like the sky square at the end of fifth, whitening at dawn, unseen as you watch the unlit cabs go by. The white rose bars opened very early in the morning. I recall waiting in one of them to watch an astronaut go into space, waiting so long that at the moment it actually happened, I had my eyes not on the television screen, but on a cockroach on the tile floor. All summer the park smelled of cloves and it was dying. Now it is Labour Day and you have been sleeping through a rainstorm half aware of the sewage and frying peanut oil and the ozone rising in the morning heat and the sound of your roommate hooking the chain, flipping ice cubes into a brandy balloon, pouring juice over them, ruby sanguinello, till they giggle, popping their skins. The freezer throbs. He has been beating a man he met on Craigslist. He has been dreaming. Old New York, a James novel, a Greenwich Village Christmas, a certain kind of frost in the meatpacking district and the smell of the carcasses dull with the tang of freezing blood beside the skip of the Hudson wind. You have been thinking of the building opposite at night, the lights going off one by one, a diminished Mondrian, one ochre square where a woman undresses for the city, stroking her puffy thighs. You hear him talking on the phone about you, his... Petite Anasante. All summer you have been eating peaches from the green market. Over ripe in September, they need to rest in the ice box sitting with their bruises. All summer you have been dreaming of fall and its brittle confection of branches. Moving in the bathroom at Christmas, plucking your eyebrows, shaving. On Friday, Trine will be back and you will take two Advil and lie on a table in Chelsea holding yourself open. Stretch it, she says, irritably sometimes, and stretch as lavender wax wells voluptuously in hidden places and turn as you kneel on all fours so she can clean you up behind and still parting you open, her fingers spend one moment too long tissuing off the dead wax with almond oil and all done, she pats, producing hot towels. Then moving lightly over the floor, taking medicines with last night's overnight out brackish water in a coffee mug, taking a levothyroxine, half a Lexapro, some vitamins to ward off colds, one to reduce PMS, some other crap you bought in a basement discount store with a cold last Monday from a man who thought you might be low in magnesium. He said this while eating vegan candy from a ripped-out pack snatched from his own counter. Then the weighing the exhalation on the scales, a finger calipering for fatness, a finger slipping in to check the cervix and walking out of the house into a world overwhelmed with rain and light snow at more than capacity, 
so the taxi drivers are only in the middle lane and the rose sellers have stayed home. <coughs> We thought we'd begin by talking about formal things, and then in the second bit of chat, we might talk about the question of subject and indeed storytelling. We've, we've already strayed rather out of formal into these later, uh, what we thought of initially were gonna be the later subjects, because they are so hard to keep apart, it seems to me. But, um, but just thinking about what we've heard from that wonderful New York poem, um, it seems to me that there are lots of narratives going on in it, actually. It's just that we don't stay with any of them very long. I, I wonder whether um, you feel as I do that there is something, and I've already used this word in different contexts, but is there something from a poet's point of view that's often slightly embarrassing about story? Um, and do, you, do you ever feel that? It's the, because it's too, so banal? I sometimes feel embarrassed by my capacity to tell stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had tried to write, when I was younger, in my 20s, a novel about basically being a young person right. in New York. So I suppose any of these individual right. scenes, you know, the roommate, the woman yeah, in the flat right. waking up, that would have, for me, been sort of 10 pages of my yeah, novel, exactly. just talking. Then I would have incredible difficulty getting them out of the room and into right. the next room to do the next thing. I know, that's the, the next hell, thing. I mean, What's the doorknob um, like? I mean, you just keep getting yeah. sort of held up on details all the time, don't you? Because we like details. Yeah, I think that's right. So that the, the details become the centre of the... Right, the, the exactly. So they, they're sort of images that contain a story. Exactly, them, I think. exactly. But, and to the poetic mind, that's sort of almost enough, isn't it? But the, the larger thing, mm. then they went off into the sunset, that's the more boring stuff. I, I feel, anyway, mm. somebody, I mean, you, you probably correct me about this point, this quotation, but I seem to remember somebody saying about Wordsworth, or perhaps Wordsworth saying about him, himself, that um, he was a person with, person with sufficient powers of imagination, but no powers of invention. Mm. And I, I often think that's true of poets. I mean, because poetry doesn't require what I think he means by invention in that context of us. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I suppose, yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, I think in so the poem that I've been working on more recently, the, the, uh, some of the part of the poem is about um, the fire in the Grenfell Tower in London. So that's certainly not my story, um, right. and it's not something that I've invented either. Right. So there is information about it that's right. available. Um, and obviously, you've done the same kind of thing with, with war poetry, where there's some use of yeah. kind of documentary sources or yes. other sources to yeah. tell a story that isn't one's own, but you're not, right. not making it. I haven't invented it. Well, I mean, you're saying that about the Grenfell Fire and indeed about my um, trying to write things about men fighting. Um, th there's a common problem in those things, I think, which, mm. I mean, and I'm going to say something very obvious now, which is how on earth you locate yourself right. in relation to something which is frankly worse than anything that's happened to us as individuals. Um, how do you do that without seeming to get off on the subject and in the process to, to associate the gravity of the subject with quality in the poem, um, which can only lead us, anybody attempting to do that, mm. into a sort of hideous inflation of ego in relation to the subject, unless you're extremely careful. So what are you doing about that in the Grenfell poem? Um, I, suppose, I think I agree that is a very difficult problem. I mean, one of the solutions, um, I suppose, that the poem takes is to um, take some of the format of a kind of Ignatian spiritual exercise. So the idea that um, instead of, as in perhaps in modern kind of therapy, trying to think as well as you can about yourself, right. but despite your various flaws, um, to abase yourself by... Right thinking about your own inadequacies right. and by dwelling on something truly horrific, Indeed. you know, people burning in hell, or yes, in the case right. of this poem, people. Um, so that there is, um, the, the fire becomes a kind of thing to think about or a right. thing to think with. 
rather than you know, the central story of the poem. It isn't. Quite. It isn't really. So that the poem is sort of humiliated in advance about its exactly. inability to be about this exactly. thing. Its so sideways quite. attitude towards so it. So it's completely clear to your reader that you're not, in some sense, sort of aggrandizing yourself by associating with a, such a subject. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I would, I hope so. Yeah. Quite. I mean, I suppose that it's. I do live very close to the tower, so sure. it is. Um, I mean, it would be hard to write about my neighbourhood um, at the time at which I was writing about it, you know, have yeah. a little baby being on maternity leave without writing about it. I mean, if right. I didn't say at the end of every street, right. you know, I'm walking there to the doctor's is. surgery, there it is, yeah. then I would be erasing that story yeah. from the poem. And that, that would be really problematic to you. Um, and there's I'd, something else, there's another sort of device one can, quite, that's quite the word for it, one can use in these situations, I think, which is to rely on the material itself and not mm. mediate it very much. I mean, my, for what it's worth, in quite a lot of the war poems that I've I'd rather come to the end of doing it now, but when I was writing them, um, I used to rejoice when I found stuff that I could more or less turn into a found poem. I'm a bit of tweaking here and here and there. Um, I know what the problems associated with that are, but at least it meant that I wasn't interposing my body, so to speak, um, between the reader and, and the material. Yeah, but I, I, did you find that the language that the people used was very different from the language you would naturally find? I mean, that there, that there was therefore something alien about it. In a it, problematic or, way sometimes, um, because it was sort of intrinsically unpoetic, but other mm. times I thought, actually, this is fantastic. I mean, this person is sort of liberating me to write or this thing that I've been reading, usually talking to people, actually talking to soldiers, um, have liberated me to think of it being possible to write a different kind of poem. Um, yeah, I think that, that question about what vocabulary words you Quite. can get into, into poems and to challenge yeah. yourself to, in a sense, of more words. is crucial. I mean, I, I, a lot of the testimony so far given to the Grenfell Inquiry has been interrogation of firefighters. And of course, when firefighters see a fire, they do have a rather different vocabulary for talking about sure. what they see than you know, the layperson who I had only seen you know, the after effects and yeah. images of the fire burning on television. But of course, they have this incredibly precise descriptive vocabulary. Quite. So it is, I think, interesting yes. to work out how you might use that. I, to absolutely. That's exactly the, the kind um, of thing I, I mean. And it, and it is a way of solving this problem, I think. Um, some of you know this. I, I went to live in America four years ago, almost exactly. Um, I live in Baltimore. No, I, I work at Johns Hopkins. Um, and I thought when I got there that I was going to write lots of poems about America. Go to Baltimore and write about Baltimore. You know. Everybody's seen The Wire, um, haven't yeah. you? You've all seen The Wire, which is set in Baltimore. And it's an understatement um, about how, <laughs> what a complicated place Baltimore is. Um, but of course, that isn't what happened. I sat, when I got to Baltimore, I sat down and I wrote a poem about my dead parents. Um, <laughs> in other words, I had to go away quite a long way from England in order to... Um, sort of see it more clearly. But now four years have gone by and I have started writing poems about living in America and um, not in a, a way that I, I hope, and this follows on from what you were saying, not I hope, in a way that seems to imply that I know what the hell's going on because very often I don't. I mean, it seems so foreign. Mm. Um, and the fact that they speak more or less the same language as we do in, in the UK is very, very misleading um, because it's, it glosses mm. over the idea of its foreignness. I mean, you've lived there too. I expect you've had a similar sort of feeling. I didn't write any poems in the decade that I lived in America for some reason. Really? Hardly, hardly any, a few lines. I'd written poems in my 20s before I left. But you wished to? I, well, I, I did wish to, but I thought of it as a wish that belonged to the past. And I wrote the first poem in the book kind of two months after I came back. So well, I don't know a, what explains that. But it's it, a sort of version of what I maybe yeah. have just said about um, doing, it, doing it the other way around. That's very interesting. Anyway, r related to this, um, now I have started writing poems about living in Baltimore, which are often poems about missing things in England as well, or thinking about things in England. Um, I found 
as I've, I've been doing it more, that my patience for writing develop narratives, even of a fragmented kind that, mm. that appears in Essex Clay, has got even less. I mean, I, I want to write these poems which are, are much less interested in, in telling stories than before. Quite, I'm, again, I'm not entirely sure why this should be the case, but it seems to be what's happening. I mean, it may not be something that is only specific to us or perhaps even to poets. I guess that there, um, you know, the sort of interest in autofiction. I mean, Rachel Cusk's idea sure. that increasingly autobiography is the only form for all the arts. I mean, there are a lot of novelists or people who Indeed. have been novelists and written yeah. conventional novel novels who seem also to feel, you know, fragile about traditional right. plot structures. Yeah. So perhaps we're. I mean, let alone Nazgard and all that jazz. Right, exactly. Know, yeah. um, quite. Um, shall I read a bit of this and then. Great. Um, it follows, does follow on pretty well exactly from what we've been talking about. Um, I mean, so much so, in fact, that I, when I was thinking about what to call this poem, I thought, well, I'll, what is dark matter? I'll go and look up what the d definition of dark matter, and it said randomly moving particles. And I thought, that's exactly what I'm trying to do here. So this poem is called Randomly Moving Particles. Um, and I'll just read the first part of it. The, the logical extension of what we were trying to say there, I think, is that instead of having a developed story, for my, in my case anyway, what I've been trying to do is find a, a way of sort of agglomerating various patterns of imagery um, and little themes which I chase around. So there's a certain amount about, in this poem about moving out of one country and going to live in another one. There's a certain amount about missing friends in England and my children in England in, in particular. So there is a you, but it's a sort of compound you. Um, Trying to think about Brexit, uh, trying to think about Trump, not, not for long, but um, I mean, he, he ought to be there. So there's a bit about, he doesn't appear in the bit that I'm going to read you, you'll be glad to hear, but um, he is in the poem. Um, and quite a bit, though this was rather crept up on me in, in an unplanned way, in each of the sections there's something about space exploration. It has something to do with the, the fact, I think, that Hopkins has a very brilliant um, bit of the faculty there that among other things, make the um, things that they attach to these devices that go into deep space. Um, so the, the, those mirror things on the Hubble telescope were done at, polished up at Hopkins. So it, it sort of has, has sort of has been in my mind. So there's a little bit of space here too. Anyway, um, you have to imagine the poem beginning in flying back from London to Baltimore and in, in little bits. Randomly moving particles. That Christmas I ran through fire in Blighty, carrying my old father across my shoulders. My mother too, she followed. You alive, alas, I could not bring. Flight attendants wear Santa hats or Rudolph ears and keep straight faces during the emergency drills. In the easy weeping that arrives with high altitude, grief is not too powerful a word. I grieve for you in the life left behind, the existence diminishing. I hear the cirrus I fly through crackle like dry clay and planets squealing on their pivots in deep space. I set my watch five hours behind. Eventually I sleep. The Maryland coast below my plane losing height, pleasure boats in the miniature expensive harbors bearing white teeth in green mouths dropped open, then suburbs working avenues into close-knit tweed leaves all fallen, blue swimming pools glaring empty, is changing to was, 
bluntly reformed parts of speech, nouns being ocean now, adjectives wide, and emails stacked in thin air waiting for my phone to wake up as the facts of my life are occluded within my life. There is no river flowing. There is infinite block time and a decisive spotlight finger pointing now to this minute, now to another. Also there is jet lag, a clothes bag of soft grey linen filled with hammers dragged by their own weight down the marble brain. Baltimore Department of Transportation, what the hell? Odd potholes maybe, but entire gravel trenches, really? Jiggly loose brick crossings, dolphin back, tarmac humps, scoops, cobble runs, bare mud, even really? Then downtown past the haunted high rises and blind eyes of Gotham Golgotha scattering underground steam bursts, last gasps exhaling whatever rat king is snacking on beneath, concrete and fenders, gravel titbits, knocked off exhausts, until finally out and through into widening brighter light with gorgeous silvery Chesapeake sky overreaching and sweet tire warbles where I in passing came to stay. Snow begins, throwing down blank pages to catch everything close, winds advances, poor prints and strangers, never you close. The second day in my life I shall not live through entirely, the hours being less than 24, is beginning when I would like to be told. My shadow has severed its ties and taken off over the whiteness arriving. I am not afraid. A point continues when it has no other part. Four billion miles from the sun, making it the most remote planetary flypast in history, New Horizons has surveyed Ultima Thule from a distance of 2,200 miles. Its shape is a contact binary, which is to say two touching bodies. It is a russet colour, caused by the exposure of hydromolecules to sunlight over millions of years. Originally an agglomeration of pebbles, it coalesced into successively larger bodies until only two remained. These gradually travelled towards each other and merged in a walking speed kiss, more like docking than collision. When my sleep begins, I fall back to the front gate watching you fold down into your car and drive away. Breast myth, mist on the windows, a phantom of exhaust, the childish liquid dribble I could have used to track you. Instead, I took myself inside and leaned on the door back in the new and weirdly high definition of time in solitary. The pathos of a dumped umbrella still sparky with rain. Sinister daylight in the bedroom becoming a block of ice, trimmed and polished, to fill exactly the same dimensions. With so much malice in natural law, such purposive hurt in the life of inanimate things, I had half expected to turn to the Atlantic sky in passing and see you, miles below me, like a drowned woman in a well, endlessly the same, endlessly falling. And more in the same cheerful vein for another ten pages. <laughs> Andrew was talking about the facts of my life. I suppose one of the premises of you know, the traditional realist novel is that um, time passes at an even rate and all time is equally important and equally worth 
recording and yet um, in the last two long poems that I've written, so the, the last poem in my book, which is mostly about becoming a mother and, and my father dying, and then this poem about the Grenfell Tower, um, that doesn't seem to be the case. So um, the, I'm going to read, first of all, the section from The Sampit After Rain, which is about giving birth by cesarean section. So you know, the fact of my life is that I have two children, but the, the birth of those two children lasted about four minutes each. You know, I cut you open, get the baby out. Um, but it's also true, of course, for people who whose lives have been completely altered, um, you know, you've lost family members or just simply their homes um, in the Grenfell Tower fire, but the fire was only um, burning for about four hours. By the time I woke up, it was already put out. But of course, the meaning of the fire, the story of the fire, um, is what happens outside, that, that kind of <coughs> heightened sort of narrative time. So I've been interested anyway and had the question of how you write about these events. Um, I'm going to read the, a brief description of um, the Caesarean, and then I'll read from the new poem. Once they began, I was calmer. I enjoyed the gush of the knife and the sound of the scissors, the slop of my bowel being set to one side, the look on the surgeon's face, his attentiveness and shock. Can someone pass me the forceps, please? And then, almost too soon, he was looking away at the ascension of the enormous baby boy rising over the curtain into the neon ceiling and the glowing plinth of green, twitching, hacked about. The fish thrashing on the hook that happened to it. Well, of course, who wants to be born and to be hauled out in a windowless room somewhere near Paddington to Radio 5 Live? <laughs> to be born purple, your hair scrambled like eggs. I have never heard a person so incredulous with rage. <laughs> And then they couldn't stop the bleeding. Everything was larger than they thought, they said. The baby, the placenta, the vessels, even the womb. So I lay on the table hemorrhaging and the alarm bell rang and the consultant asked, what uterine tonics have been administered? Oxytocin, agometrin. It sounded like a restaurant kitchen. Someone was washing up the fish knives and my husband had a face in his hands. Grave, despite the monkey hat, benignant, black-eyed, magnanimous. One of the other strange things about giving birth, of course, is that you get an another character. You know, suddenly arrives into into the narrative. You know, you go in as one person and you you come out as two. And the gaze of the doctor does very literally switch. You know, from from the mother to the baby. Um, you sort of cease to be the central subject in a sense. Um, so this, this is from the opening of the uh, new poem, which is called Tenants. Um, and it begins with aftermath. So it begins, the, the fire happened, as you remember, in June of 2017, so almost um, the longest um, day of the year. So dawn, dawn came very early. To walk into the flat where it all started and see the fridge, the square, it had no depth. It would have crumbled under water jets. To walk out of the bridgehead into dawn. Outside, this incandescence, neither green nor yellow, in the gardens, June, the birds. The traffic on the Westway was still sparse and stately as the drivers rubbernecked. To say the caller's name and hold the line. To keep the caller there until the end. To walk into the almost longest day, the tinnitus of silence after sound. Outside, this incandescence in the gardens, the sprinklers turning in the garden squares.
My leave was over and my life was fixed. Both children were in nursery, so that was that. I left the baby sitting on the floor, his blue eyes still, absorbed, his flat nose slanted down, trying to make two wooden watermelon halves adhere. The Velcro strip flagged loose from one. It's usually best, they said, to walk out now. So I scurried to the bus, thin, aching everywhere, confused, milk sapping in my bra, it left small chalky circles in the cups. I checked at oxen time, refreshing it again as magnifying paperweights of rain defaced the screen. All winter, cranes had snapped on nubs of sky or bowed low from the waist, but as the markets faltered, new, new build penthouses were passed, unshown, unseen, between the agencies and work on double basements stopped. In Holland Park, the sandpit was relayed and toddlers scattered peanuts in their shells. The greasy, red-skinned peanuts lay cocooned in emptiness, uneaten by the pigeons who preferred the ends of barnmy chicken buns from Pret. There were fine rains, too fine to pockmark raked-up sand. One day, I saw a group of pigeons gathering round, eating up the breast meat, then the heart of a dead crow whose picked-off body had the smoothness of an ice cream scoop on top, the backside feathery still. In other tower blocks, night was never made complete. Men studied medicine, FaceTimed with Africa, or pressed their uniforms with travel irons. A woman sat with a dementing pain, got worse each time or in the spine, bent to the table or repacking socks, fruit pastels, doll-sized nappies, timing the contractions as they came. Here, night was total, till the sun flushed yellow in an instant through the flats. It made me think of being 14 and drawing trees and leaves in dual science. Trees are much easier to draw. The nutrients pass in loopless lines beneath the bark, everything straight, rectangular, lacking redundancy. Dichotomous, pinnet, reticulate. The tiny veins move nutrients through the system. And if the leaf is bitten by an insect or torn by someone shoving through a hedge, the liquid can loop round the damaged part, the leaf's venation tolerating breakage, so yellow dye fluoresces everywhere, like sun at dawn inside the burnt-out tower, or the root a torch cast for you in the dark, a blazing exit-here illumination. It was a blackened skeleton, the paper said, a mausoleum, our disgrace. What I saw was still in the process of decay, its texture crinkled, papery, sometimes theatrical and delicate like the feather bow around the empty windows, but also stubbled, coppery, a tampon's stringy nose, the hessian bits on blackberries, all the mascara shades from blackest black to brown and palest round the window holes where panes had slid onto the tarmac with white leaves, fine pencil sharpenings of flame where people had hung sheets, where five had jumped. I felt the body glancing on my back, a fireman said. I saw the leg come popping off, still with its slipper on, and run. Over to you. 
very much indeed to Hannah and Andrew. And we do have a short amount of time now for any questions which anybody might like to put to our two performers. So if you do, please indicate and we can hear from you. Hannah, with um, two young children, when do you find time to write? <laughs> um, it, not as much as I, I would like. And I have a full-time job as well in Oxford, so um, on the Oxford Tube, I mean, this is prime begins with waiting for the Oxford Tube, um, that on the, you know, the motorway, the M40 going to Oxford, that's one of the places, but um, I would like to have more, certainly. Perhaps it's not always the case that having more time to write makes it easier, though. I don't know what you think about that. I mean... I, well, I had young children once upon a time. Yeah, you did. <laughs> More than I do, yeah. Um, um, well, I, th I mean, it, it sounds like a question that might not lead in very many directions except to sort of express the difficulty of finding that time. But actually, it seems to me that it goes in all sorts of directions there yeah. because it's yeah. not just a, t a question about time itself, is it? It's about how much mental space it leaves you. Um, and I think it's, I mean, for all sorts of obvious reasons, it's probably even more difficult for mums than it is for dads. But I know that when my children were very small, I often found it that my radar was completely jammed mm. just by stuff going on in the house that needed my attention. And you have to give it even, even more than I did then. So, um, I mean, also, it, there's terms of sort of material, I think, in that you know, the lives of many parents with small children are quite limited in, you, in your house sure. a lot. And there's a lot of repetitive yeah. action. You know, every day quite. the child has dinner. Where's its bib? You know, you do the laundry, you change the yeah. nappies, you do the bath. Quite, quite. And those are not traditionally the subjects of poetry. So I think the question of how you <laughs> make poems from those subjects, if that is, you know, what your life consists of, basically, yeah. other than commuting and, and working, which... Well, part of the originality um, of what you're doing is precisely that, that you are making those things into subjects. I mean, the, the, and you can see a sort of trace element of that running through poems by women over the, yeah. the years since ever, but especially if you think about Sylvia Plath, for instance. I mean, they're... Mm. There's plenty of sort of the difficulties of having children poems in, in her. Um, question to Andrew. Going back to your first um, reading. Where are you? Sorry, uh, I can't see you. Don't need to see me. Oh, yes. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Sorry. Um, and you were talking about narrative in poetry. Yes. Um, listening to it, it could well have been a short story, Quite. the intensity of the language yeah. and the narrative. Can you tell us a little bit about... Um, how you see the difference between poetry and short story, and whether you see any connection between the two. I certainly do see a strong connection between poetry and stories, thank you. Um, and I'm sure Hannah would, would say a similar sort of thing to this, in, in, in that they both have to think hard about distillation and concentration and so on. Um, I wouldn't be at all offended if people thought of that poem as, as a short story. It, it, it is, in all sorts of ways, a short story. I mean, it, it has a begin. I mean, in Larkin's wonderful phrase, it has a beginning and a muddle and an end. <laughs> um, I mean, the muddle is full of quite sad things, but it does. There is a sort of uh, narrative shape to it, uh, as a way of thinking about memory and its operations, which is really what I was interested in trying to get at. Um, Lurking within your question, there is a question about what is the difference between poetry and prose, which I don't think I'm even going to try and answer, because whatever answer one gives to that, you will immediately think of a million exceptions to the rule you've just tried to lay down. Um, but I recognise that that is part of the question. One thing that might, I hope, be interesting to, to add, though, to this is that what wasn't immediately obvious, uh, um, perhaps wasn't obvious at all in the way that I read it, and, doesn't, and isn't obvious as I'm reading it aloud, is that I, in a sort of... Boborg-like way. I took all the punctuation out of the poem, um, except for full stops. And I moved the lines around over the, all over the pages because I wanted to write a poem that was 
And this is a difference between it and what you could conventionally expect in a short story. So I hope answers your question in a way. Um, I moved the lines around on the page so that the blank spaces would be expressive of where I expected people to take breaths. I really wanted it to be a poem which was about breathing and sometimes the great difficulty of breathing insofar as form can, can express that, which I think it very often can. I think of poetry as a breath art, really. Um, I mean, I, go on. No, I was, was going to say, I think it's very interesting that you said short story and not mm. prose or, yeah. or, or novel, in that um, the fact that we think of stories that are 10 or 20 pages is essentially short pieces of writing, but a 20-page poem is very, very long. Even a 10-page poem is a long poem. Right. says so something about our tolerance for, yeah. for reading the two forms, yeah. for the amount of the speed with which we can yeah. get through them. But yeah. I, I agree that there are more similarities between short stories and these kinds of you know, short book length, or in my case, merely 20 pages, long poems than between these poems and, and novels. My, my great ambition for the poem I'm writing now has been to write a short story in the middle of it, but I've been unable to do that because <laughs> I actually can't tell a story. Can any kind of write the opening scene of a short story? Um, um, I wondered whether um, the traditional size of pamphlets and poetry books um, uh, inhibit the natural length of a long poem. I suppose it's a question of when poetry books became the length that they Indeed. are. I mean, so in the 19th century, the average length of a poetry book wasn't 60 no, pages. Quite, um, so quite. when did that happen? When did they get so short? Well, that's a good question, when did um, they get so short? Probably quite recently. Um, I mean, if you see a book of poems over 100 pages, you think, bloody yeah. hell, that's long. You know, <laughs> um, almost too long, actually, is, I think, a lot of people's reaction to that. But I think your question, that's a very interesting question, I think, about the, the formal expectations that publishing formats automatically mm. make of their us as writers, I mean all of us as writers, not only in terms of length, for the reasons that you would imply, but also in terms of rapidity of outcome. Um, I mean, at, at least you have to wait a year between the thing actually getting to your publisher and the thing being in the, in the bookshops, um, which, particularly in a case like Hannah's Grenfell poem, seems to me a pity that it would be wonderful if it could come out now or when she finishes it, um, so that it was m just in the most pragmatic way more associated with the event that stands at the centre of it. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, in fact, the Grenfell poem, I think, you know, if I'd written it as soon as the fire happened, it would be one thing, but because actually sure. very little is known still about what happened and the right. inquiry has been so slow and the second phase has been delayed yeah. um, and some of the poems being written from those materials right. that actually a delay of a little bit longer perhaps this doesn't make any difference, but... Before I fled the country, I um, had a fantasy of setting up a publishing company that would do exactly, again, what you're implying in your question, that would produce things very quickly. And some of them would be on postcards, and some of them would be on posters, and some of them would be in books. Um, some of them would be 200 pages long, and some of them would be 10 pages long. And just to kind of try and bust the structure that we're all, some of us feel rather sort of confined by. This isn't, I don't mean to complain about my publishers, incidentally, as I say this, I love my publishers. <laughs> Um, but I do think that the sort of the staticness of the format is rather inhibiting. I think there's also the question of people's expectations about how much they're going to read at once. So um, when I first had a copy of Essex Clay, I was incredibly surprised that I was able to read it all through, you know, with pleasure, in the way that I would read a, a novel or a story, you know, that I didn't have to stop after 10 pages and kind of put it down and get some breath back. But um, I think often people do approach reading poetry like that and 
There's not only the question of how, I mean, the, the book format controls things, but then how these modes of attention and also the, the kinds of attention that poetry readings, um, you know, lend to poems. Right. And that it's, it's very difficult to read. The shortest poem in my book is 20 minutes to read out loud, and I hardly ever get a 20-minute slot to read. You know, 15 minutes is the most. I've only ever read it out loud if one of the other readers hasn't come, you know, so that we've got <laughs> more time than we were meant to have. Um, but I think often audiences are expecting... You know, poetry readings to have um, not quite the structure of a sort of stand-up comedy, but, but little segments where sure. someone gives a kind of glint of you know insight into one aspect of their life, and they talk about it a bit, and then they move on and they do something different. That there's there's yeah. constant variety rather than something continuous. Absolutely. But also, I was thinking that um, you don't want to put anything else with your long poem because it would stand alone, and you know right. you have to put other things with it to put it in a book. Great. Right. Um, can I thank um, Hannah and Andrew on all our behalves? Um, and um, could we show our appreciation? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you both.